the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, they let him out of his cage for one more one more day, I see. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you on board. 27th day of June, in case you weren't keeping track. And Craig Roberts, before your shell-like ears on this Tuesday edition of the program, talking about lots of stuff going on in the news. A little bit later on, we're going to talk about Senate Bill 239. That was an assisted suicide bill that was wholly unassisted. <laughs> it's uh, It's been vetoed by the governor of Nevada. We're going to tell you what's behind it and whether or not similar legislation could be attempted here in California. Constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus joins us a little bit later on in tonight's program. I want to start, though, with... Election discussions. You think, oh my goodness, no, no, please. It just seems as if the election cycle never ends. As soon as they win, they're running again. But this kind of gets deeper into sort of the nitty gritty as to how our elections work, contrast between how they function and how the candidates operate in the primary versus the general election. Some have said that um, the primary is where the party gets to vote and the general election is where the public gets to vote. But what about this matter of how we go about voting and the challenges that the candidates often face in garnering the right kind of votes in the right sections of the country at the right time in order to win their seat? With some insights on this um, interesting, if not complicated, issue. We are joined by syndicated radio talk show host for many, many years, best-selling author, CPA, and lawyer in his own right, Mr. Bob Zadek. And Robert, how are you? Long time no talk. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me back on the show. And you have inadvertently, inadvertently teed up the issue in exactly the right tone by your bemoaning the fact, oh no, another election cycle, here we go again. Our country, and this is my premise, our country is exhausted from election cycles. It is, in fact, horrible for the country. It means that we don't ever get a chance to talk about or think about much else other than elections. It's not good for the country. Now, what would be the alternative? In teeing up tonight's topic, the alternative is we have to go back to the future. What do we have to do? I am and you, Craig, are old enough to remember, most of our audience is not, the time when 
there were no primaries to speak of. Well, how were candidates chosen? They were chosen at a party convention. Remember that? They all meet in some, in some stadium. Walter Cronkite is in the booth upstairs and broadcasting, and they have Mike Wallace and other reporters on the floor with handheld microphones interviewing representatives from Kansas and Rhode Island and Iowa and New York. How is your state going? Well, we're still talking about it. And there was this tension-filled night. The party elders met in, remember them, smoke-filled rooms. Oh, how I miss smoke-filled rooms. And they decided who was going to be the party's candidate for president or for Congress or whatever. Now, how undemocratic can you be? And I say, you can't be more undemocratic than that, and that's a good thing. And what happens when the insiders, the bosses, get to pick candidates is when they pick candidates, they pick candidates based upon one thing, the candidate most likely to win the general election. And they are professionals. They have spent their entire lives in politics figuring out how to pick winners. That's what they do. And therefore, they will pick a candidate who will be most likely to win 50.01% of the Electoral College vote. Because they want to win. They don't pick. And therefore... We end up with candidates more towards the middle as opposed to candidates in the extremes, which is what the primaries do. Now, why am I so afraid of democracy, small d democracy? Why do I dislike primaries? Well, because voters in the primaries don't pick candidates who will win the general, they can't figure that out. They're not professional politicians. They pick candidates who appeal to their emotions or their politics, which means, as we have seen election after election, candidates who win the primaries are the extreme elements of each party, not those in the middle. So that notion that I mentioned earlier, Bob, that idea that the primary is basically the party vote and the general is basically the public vote, that's actually not all that uh, inaccurate. It's not that inaccurate at all. But if we don't have primaries, it means for us, us non-professional politicians, we don't have to give much thought at all to the presidential election until after the parties meet and select their candidates. Because we don't know who's going to win. And we sort of pay passing interest. And some of us, a few of us, might be party delegates to the convention. But we go about our lives. Can we imagine the happiness of living only two months a year thinking about presidential politics instead of thinking about it for every day 
and every week of a four-year cycle with no end in sight, what a relief to be free of that stuff. Oh, no we doubt. About our lives. No doubt. Now, I'm curious from a historical perspective, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to the way all of this worked, not 50 years ago, but say 100 years ago. The, the notion that the parties would meet for their conventions sometime in late June, July, August, they would select who their candidate would be, and then between that period of time and November, they had the opportunity opportunity to do their campaigning largely by train we didn't have mass media we didn't have instantaneous uh, communication and so you looked at a very small window during which each party had an opportunity to promote their guy and then of course the elections in November and subsequently being installed in office the following March, at least in the case of of the presidency. And I'm curious, it seemed to work okay then at a time when the argument might have been had that all of this should have taken far earlier, should have taken place far earlier in the year because of the difficulty that the expanse of America had in communicating the message. Well, that, of course, is no longer an issue. So that brings me full circle back to the idea, what's wrong with the idea of knowing in June or July and having three months to decide? And you know what? And the advantage would be that we are not so obsessed with presidential politics. We don't have that in the evening news every single day. Think of how much news time during a regular non-presidential election year, how much news time is spent with preening and pasturing and... Spending money on ads as people start the campaign years in advance. All of that, it's over. And not only that, if it sounds like it's un-American, I will remind our audience, look, when, when our country needs to enact legislation, we don't leave it to the public. We don't sit around voting on bills in Congress. We have professionals do it. They're called congressmen and senators. We outsource that task and we vote for the electors. Well, we will vote for, uh, if you care, if you're a registered Democrat and Republican or whatever, you will vote for who will represent you in the party convention just like you elect a member of the House. So we still have voter participation in picking the representatives for the convention. We still, of course, have the right to vote for president. We still elect uh, democratically who the president is. I'm not eliminating democracy from America. I'm just outsourcing an obnoxious job of selecting a candidate on outsourcing its professionals so we can go about our lives and not be so obsessed with who we like in the primary. Think of the relief in our country, the taking politics out of our lives. It doesn't belong in the center. Family and friends, and yes, sports and entertainment belong in center in our lives but not politics. It's, it's not important enough. One of the aspects that has made this even more 
confounding and confusing, and we'll get to this after the break. Um, if you notice a hint of disdain for primaries in my voice and that of our guest tonight, the great Bob Zadek, you're very astute. Now, let me complicate it further by saying, if it weren't complicated and frustrating enough, there are municipalities, there are entire states that have decided it's not difficult enough. Let's make things even more complex. Let's shift from so-called closed primaries, where you can only vote the party that you identify with, to open primaries, where you can cross parties and vote. And we're still, perhaps, or maybe better, so-called rank choice voting, where it isn't a question of the which two top voter getters in each party will face off, but rather the two top vote getters without regard to party. Does that simplify things at all or make it even more confusing? Bob Zadek with us tonight to help ravel all these, unravel all these questions. Maybe some need to be raveled, too. <laughs> Bob, of course, is a best-selling author for many, many years, a syndicated talk show host. In fact, he ran one of the longest-running libertarian talk shows in the country. You can check out information about Bob and his work online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We're going to come back to more of our question regarding whether or not primaries are anti-democratic and what about the manners in which we have intentionally made things even more complicated that as our conversation with bob zadek continues and now back to lifeline with craig roberts all right we're back with author and attorney and cpa and syndicated talk show host, and on and on the list goes. Mr. Bob Zadek with us today. We're talking about voting and how we do it here in America and how in recent years there's been a propensity to take this situation and make it even more complex. And and, and to that degree, while I understand certainly the, the preference by the parties to have their own members decide who their candidates ought to be, we've seen cases where on an increasing basis um, communities are looking to things like uh, open primary where you can cross over, or even so-called rank choice voting. What are your thoughts on those approaches? And, and does it make, as I suggested earlier, Bob, an already complicated situation even more complex? Of course it does. And the problem is the goal is backwards. Uh, I, I complained before the break about too much democracy. And history has shown us that there is such a thing as having too much democracy. The founders were very fearful of what they referred to as the mob, is that the emotions of the moment would cause the voters to make bad decisions. And they needed lots of devices built into the Constitution to temper down this mob mentality. They feared popular voting, too much popular voting. To give just one example, without, for the first 120 years of our country, senators were not elected by the people. Senators, according to the Constitution, were elected by the state legislatures. 
In other words, they were elected undemocratically. Now, sure, indirectly, the voters elected the state senators and representatives, so indirectly the people had a voice, but directly they didn't get to vote for senators. So, undemocratic. But why was it done that way? Because the founders felt the states, as a political unit, had to have a say in our government. And if senators were sent to Washington by state legislatures, that was the boss. And therefore, they were sent there to look after the interests of their state as a political unit. In 19, in the sixth, the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, 1913, because there was a wave of populism and more power to the people, the Constitution was changed, and senators were then elected directly. From that day forth, states lost a lot of their power and Washington gained more power. Of course, the states as a political unit were not represented in the federal government. The people were, but not the states. Many commentators, many, have observed that severely destroyed the delicate balance of federalism in our country. What was the cause? Too much democracy. Well, and right along those very same lines, you know, people oftentimes bemoan the outcome of general elections. We've certainly been fed a steady diet of that here in recent years, and, and, and perhaps to, to, to some degree with, with legitimate complaint. But the, the irony is, even there, and maybe you can spend a moment helping to educate our listeners on, on this nuance related to um, how our system was designed by the Founding Fathers. Technically speaking, it's not the people's choice when it comes to selecting who our next president will be. It's not democracy in the purest form. It's something called the Electoral College. And as we've seen, there have been a number of cycles where a candidate has won the popular vote but lost in the Electoral College or just the opposite – And at the end of the day, perhaps there, too, the notion that our founding fathers recognize that there is a good thing in democracy, but there is a danger in having too much democracy. Do you think that's part of what went into their thinking in the creation of the Electoral College? Oh, my goodness, Craig, you're exactly right. That would have been my next point. Sometimes... I don't want to mention this, Craig. I think we were separated at birth. I think you are the brother I never had. Because you sometimes anticipate by seconds what I'm thinking. It's scary. So you're exactly right. And I, I have often thought the founders nailed it with the Electoral College. But the trouble is it never was carried out the way the founders designed it. And the system the founders created, but it never had, uh, it never was used properly. Us voters would not elect a president. We would elect an elector who we would hire 
just like we have senators and representatives doing our voting for us, we would hire the elector to pick a president because we couldn't be bothered or didn't know enough or didn't or didn't want to learn that much. And to me, I think the electoral college was better than what they have now, and it should have been just enriched. I envisioned the system, I went to the show on this, Craig, where we had 25,000 electors in the electoral college, and they were elected by the people, which means almost everybody would be voting for an elector they knew because 25,000 is a lot of electors. And they would be hired to do one thing, vote for president. And then they, then they pick up their check and they go home for another four years. And I felt that made sense. I, I wish the country was free of the burden and the annoyance and the partisanship caused by a continual 365 day a year electoral cycle. It's bad, it doesn't produce better candidates, it doesn't produce better presidents, but it sure produces partisanship and distraction in our country. Well, and in so fact, I, I would make right. the, the argument, Bob, that it, it may in fact produce worse candidates, because now suddenly there is a desire to try and cater to the so-called lowest common denominator, so let's find where that sweet spot is of the largest percentile of voters and what they look like socio-economically, demographically, educationally, and then target that group, which then has you running a slate of candidates that are not necessarily trying to put forward their education, their best ideas, their debating skills, their negotiating skills, their management skills, you know, all the pluses that ought to go into good leadership. But instead, who creates the better soundbite? Who looks better on television? Or as we learned recently of RFK, who looks better flexing their muscles? I mean, is that really what we're looking for in a candidate to lead the nation in this highest elected office? Really? But sadly, sadly, that's exactly where we find ourselves today. Bob Zadek in the conversation, we're talking about... Um, Manipulation. <laughs> I almost used another word and I caught myself. Manipulation of the original vision of the Founding Fathers and how potentially dangerous to the health of democracy so much of this has become. So much so, and we'll get to this after the break. How about this one for you? A proposal being considered in the state of Delaware that it would allow corporations to cast their vote. I mean, if you and me, why not a corporation? Now that I think of it, my dog Snooks, my dog Snooks would make a great Republican. Maybe Snooks ought to get the right to vote, too. <laughs> we'll come back with more of the conversation. Insights today from best-selling author Bob Zadek. Information available on the web, along with lots of great resources, Bob's books, etc., etc., can all be found at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. A brief time out. Back to more of the discussion as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Best-selling author Bob Zadek with us today online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We've been talking about elections, how they were designed to function by founding fathers and how we've essentially manipulated and monopolized, maybe even a good word in some cases, the way we do elections to the degree to which, as I suggested at the top of the program, you know, we used to get a little bit of breather. You you could get yourself six months a year when this wasn't the constant deluge of coverage about who's running, who lost, who's thinking of running again. And my goodness, even the notion of a presidential primary having 15, 16, 18 candidates, wow. Seldom does it seem to be about real, true qualifications, but more about who gives the best soundbite. It's been often argued, Bob, and I'm sure you've heard this, that in the debates for the 1960 election between Richard Nixon and um, Jack Kennedy, that those who listened to the debate on radio concluded that Richard Nixon won it. Those who watched it on television concluded that Jack Kennedy did based on the way Jack presented before TV. Now, that seems to be pretty sophomoric approach to how you select your candidates, but sadly, that seems the way things are on an ever-increasing basis. Who either comes up with the, 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 the best soundbite or seems to be more bombastic than the next candidate uh, seems to capture more attention. And I have to wonder, in the end, if it doesn't do not only damage below the waterline to the two-party system, but even more so to democracy itself. You know, not only you're exactly right, I have uh, read about what you said about the 1960 presidential debates, the first debate to be televised uh, in 1960. Also, Nixon perspired on his upper lip and he needed a shave. And that cost him dearly. Now, it seems to me a 25 cent shave shouldn't decide who gets to be president. Uh, but that's just me talking. Uh, another issue, if our, if our, and Craig, your audience is politically sophisticated, I'm gonna uh, make a point which if I made a point to the general public, it would be lost. It will not be lost on your audience. To make a point further about too much democracy. Right now, we have a Supreme Court. A Supreme Court, as it turns out, nine justices, and they are always identified as unelected, there's always a modifier, they have individually and collectively, as it turns out these days, enormous power over us. We wait breathlessly for the decisions of the Supreme Court much more than we ever wait to see how Congress votes on something. So the Supreme Court has enormous power. Has anybody ever wondered whether we would be better off electing Supreme Court justices as opposed to having them be appointed? I don't think anybody would favor that because we wouldn't feel confident to how could we, non-lawyers mostly, have the competence to know who's going to be the best justice. Well, I would say you're, that's exactly right. But what gives us the competence to decide who's going to be the best president? After all, a president has to understand foreign policy, domestic policy, economics, 
civics, American history, military tactics, a president's pretty important job. How do we know who's qualified other than who is popular on television? So if we are not competent, which we are not, to vote for the Supreme Court, who served for life, what makes us competent to select the presidential candidate? It's the same test. And if you try to defend intellectually, not electing members of the Supreme Court, but electing a president, you're going to get all tied up in knots. You cannot make the case. And I say both points prove that maybe direct election of residential candidates is not a good idea for the same reason it's not a good idea to elect members of the Supreme Court. Uh, Two questions. Uh, one, from from the perspective of the founding fathers, I mean, we all recognize today that we have a two-party system. There have been some attempts to try and eke out uh, at the presidential level uh, the influence of a third party uh, vis-a-vis most notably Ross Perot, but otherwise historically uh, a third party runs. It's just never been able to capture enough momentum. From the founding fathers' perspective, was the notion of a two-party system and just a two-party system held as something sacred, or were they more open to what we see in other nations where there might be six, seven, eight parties involved, maybe more? Well, Madison imagined lots of, they were called factions in those days, and Madison welcomed that being factions, and he felt in a country as large as he expected ours to be, the ambition of one party would offset the ambition of another party, and faction would neutralize faction, would neutralize faction, and therefore the collective will would win out. He didn't, but with two parties, that dynamic doesn't work quite so well. So uh, they, look, the first presence of parties was in 1800, the election of Jefferson versus uh, Adams when Jefferson won in 1800. That's when there was a Federalist and the Anti-Federalist parties. That was the first two-party election because before that, it was General Washington, and there was no election in sight. Washington won unanimously. There was no need for a, for two political parties. Who was going to be president was so obvious. The first contested election, really, was Jefferson versus Adams in, in 1800. So that's what gave birth to the parties. And it's one thing to have parties. It's another thing to get to the point where we are today, where through monopoly power controlling presidential debates, presidential debates, controlling ballot access for third parties and things of that nature, the two political parties have done have monopolized through statute, which if a private business did it, they'd be tried for Sherman or Clayton antitrust violations. So somehow we have allowed monopolies to exist for ideas um, where where we should have uh, exposure to a lot of ideas. We have allowed 
the number of ideas we're exposed to to be limited by statute, but not the number of breakfast cereals. It makes no sense. It's all backwards. And but now we have a two-party system baked in by statute. And one final question that I think kind of fits hand in glove to this notion that the the growing sense of frustration about how all of this functions, or better put, doesn't function very well, uh, has some saying, well, we need to do more to encourage more involvement, not recognizing any inherent failures to the way in which we have manipulated the original vision of the Founding Fathers, but instead somehow thinking if we just take down barriers to allow more people to vote. There have been instances of discussions about allowing people under the age of 18 the ability to vote, granting the right to vote to people uh, that are maybe illegal citizens, but they will at least have a chance to vote in a school board. Or most recently, Delaware considering allowing corporations to vote. I don't know whether that means what, the the director of the board or the chairman gets to go into the ballot box and pull the handle twice. I don't even know how that works. I don't know much about corporations having the right to vote. I don't know that at all. I haven't seen that legislation. But as to who should have the right to vote, man, is that complicated. We say you have to be 18 to vote, yet... I'm sure you and I know many 14-year-olds who have much greater wisdom than adults we interact regularly with. So that's kind of arbitrary. We don't require any kind of an intellectual test. We don't require any knowledge of citizenship. We don't require anything very much. We have no standards of voting. And the question is, should we have? Should we have property Oh, contentious question, and I'm not advocating for it. I am just saying the issue of who should have the right to vote, what's healthiest for the country, we've never had that discussion at all, and yet we just take it for granted. Um, Everybody gets the right to vote. I say we suffer from too much democracy, and... Craig, I'll close by saying I would favor incredibly limited democracy, such as only I get the vote and no one else. That would make me really happy, and I would then would support that process entirely. <laughs> Leaving us on a wonderful tongue-in-cheek up note, and certainly plenty more to ponder on the topic. Check out that thing, Bob, regarding uh, this proposal in uh, in Delaware to allow corporations to vote. I think you'll find it fascinating, if not <laughs> certainly at the core, troubling. Bob Zadek, best-selling author. More information about Bob's great work and all the resources to it. His website, check him out at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Arguably one of the most brilliant minds when it comes to the history of our United States Constitution. Always appreciate great insights from Bob Zadek. Online at bobzadek.com. Dot com. All right, we're here at uh, 13 minutes before the hour. Did I get that right? Yeah. Sometimes kids need to take their shoes off in order to count above 10. <laughs> and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It has been, my goodness, probably 25 plus years since we had early, early debates with the uh, late Derek Humphreys of Hemlock Society infamy and Brian Johnston 
regarding so-called death with dignity or the right to suicide. It goes by a lot of names, most of them significant misnomers. And in the meanwhile, while we have been fortunate to largely see states like California reject such measures, they are beginning to creep in more and more. There is a somewhat nefarious physician-assisted suicide measure in California, as there is in Oregon, as there is in Washington State. Well, they tried the same thing in Nevada, and in fact, the Nevada legislature passed the bill that would allow a person considering termination of their own life access to drugs without physician oversight even without a physician being present let alone checking to make sure that you're of the right mind well fortunately the governor there seems to have vetoed this measure. Let's get more now where we're joined by constitutional lawyer and founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Counselor, always great to have you with us. And, you know, it, it just one of the big concerns about these so-called uh, death with dignity measures all across the country has been their propensity to uh, allow foul play or for people that are just temporarily um perhaps extremely depressed, to make an irreversibly bad decision. So tell us what was going on in the Nevada case. Yeah, this was really a a shocker to to me when I first uh, heard about it and and read about it. Uh, Our attorney in Nevada, who heads up our office there, Emily Mimna, uh, has been uh, on this from the beginning and actually uh, met with the governor about this legislation. So she's been a heavy influence against it, probably, I think, a decisive influence against it. Uh, she had informed me that, you know, this legislation uh, is uh, such that, you know, all someone has to do is just sign a piece of paper saying that they're mentally and emotionally competent, and uh, they can get their drug in the mail. No one has to be around. No prior psychological assessment or examination. Uh, it just makes death really, really easy. And uh, it's, of course, very tr- you know, traumatic uh, for so many cases where uh, they really aren't terminally ill. You're looking at supposedly they only have six months left, but that's very, very subjective with that kind of a length of time. You know, I know an individual, Craig, who was uh, given two to three months to live. Uh, she fought it, and a new drug came out against her with, it, that uh, pushed back her cancer. She lived more than two years later. I know someone else who lived 10 years plus after being told they only had one year to live. Uh, so um, this is very uh, irresponsible, and uh, fortunately, this governor, narrowly elected, I might add, uh, he went against the legislature. He did the right thing. And we at Pacific Justice Institute applaud him and are privileged to be able to work with him to to, uh, see this done. Well, and uh, to put this in context, I'm going to use a little bit of my own uh, personal family story here. Uh, Imagine an individual who, with no previous warnings or indicators, uh, suddenly goes into the hospital, is examined, and the conclusion of that examination is cancer and a tumor the size of a grapefruit. And a oncologist who has been in practice for decades, lots of experience, who looks at the age, looks at a variety of factors, including the size of the tumor removed, and declares that the life expectancy is no more than six months. Uh, 
Now, if you're an individual that doesn't have a strong faith, that maybe struggles with feelings of depression and um, can easily be pushed over the edge emotionally when something doesn't go right. You know, the the transmission stops working on the car, the check bounces, whatever. Imagine that same individual based on the advice of a learned expert an oncologist who says you have six months to live, but in the meanwhile, and following this surgery, you're going to undergo painful chemotherapy treatment, your hair will all fall out, you will have moments of horrible sickness, it's going to be a miserable existence for the six months that we're able to drag your life out until finally the relief of death comes. A person who doesn't have a support system or a faith may look at that and say, why would I want to hang around for six more months and have a miserable existence? You know what? Let's just get this over with now. All all I'm going to do is just speed up the inevitable anyway and save myself and my family an awful lot of heartache and agony in the meanwhile. I don't want to have people see me begin to unravel like that. And so you go and you make arrangements to commit suicide. But because because you're somebody who does have a strong faith and a, a a, a, a tight woven support system you undergo chemotherapy you trust in your God you exercise your faith you change your lifestyle in terms of what you eat and exercise and so on and so forth and you defy the doctor's prediction remember he's the expert you defy the doctor's pr- prediction and instead of living a paltry six months and then dying a miserable death you you live 13 years and six months. And over the course of that time, enjoy time with family and friends and grandchildren and live a happy and productive life. Yes, with its ups and downs related to battling cancer, but a happy and productive life nevertheless. Now, that's the true story, by the way, of my own mother. So imagine, Brad, if somebody who doesn't have that faith, doesn't have that support system, were to make a decision based solely on what the doctor said and could likely have ended up terminating their life 13 years prematurely based on bad information. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's not unusual, and uh, we've seen this happen. People who are depressed often do not make the right decision. This legislation, had it become law, wouldn't even let the parents know about it at all or counsel with the, the family. Uh, they would just make it death quick, easy, and uh, and save the insurance company or the hospital you know, money. But um, And that's unfortunately where we are in our society. That's why uh, we work really hard to, uh, to fight this. And, and with our offices now in uh, 24 states, coast to coast, 31 offices, uh, we at Pacific Justice do stand ready to fight legislation like this at a state level as well as, of course, in the courts. Well, we're very grateful that in this case there was a wise governor who, contrary to the quote-unquote wisdom of the Nevada House and Nevada Senate, um, ultimately vetoed this dangerous legislation, but it just shows that the attack and assault on life continues in many forms and in many levels in many places. And uh, thankfully, there's also organizations like the Pacific Justice Institute to stand up for people of faith and people that value what life is. Brad Dake is founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information available on the web at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.